Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello, hello. Well, it, you you were right. It turned out that the US election really ended up overshadowing the Rubik's Cube World Cup. In what way? Well, it, I couldn't find anything on the news about the Rubik's Cube World Cup. I was flicking between the channels. I had to Google today to find out the name of the uh, the world champion, Max Park, by the way, who's a American. And how um, long did it take him? Three, he did it three times, and they work out an average, and it was I think around six seconds. I mean, I have to say, what. I th- pride us on and i think it's important for four years time as well is that we were one of the first networks to call the american election (laughs) i mean we were ahead of fox news abc nbc cbs ap new york times you name it i mean we sort of called it prematurely didn't we almost recklessly some would say i know i did sort of have us kind of 24 hours of sort of worrying about it um but then it then it then it um uh, then it got called. I, I've actually, this is not my reason to be cheerful, but um, I, I, I'm sort of worried it's going to come across as a sort of humble brag or a non-humble brag. But as you know, the um, the uh, cold water swimming is off during lockdown because the mm. outdoor pools have closed. Along with, So I went for a run yesterday and there's obviously something about the swimming exercise I've done. I, I basically did my essentially a sort of personal best 5K. I was very... Oh, sorry, so it's a kind of it's a not, it's a kind of just a brag, brag. I, I wonder if it might be the bike riding as well. So you're saying, but what you're saying is the the cold swimming is giving you superpowers in whole other forms of physical activity. Well, I don't know really, but I just suddenly felt myself going a lot faster than I normally do. I mean, it's not miles off, but I took a sort of a minute or a minute or more off my personal best. When you said cold swimming is off at the moment, I thought you were then about to say, so I've been having cold baths instead, but you haven't. No, but I did have a cold shower yesterday. How was that? Cold. That's <laughs> it's the only way to stay in to stay in trim. I'm, I, 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 uh, somebody I ran into was talking to me about this, that it's the it's the only sort of it's the only answer for the for when the temperature um, for when the temperature drops. Um, but I, yeah, it's sort of that. It's, I, I don't quite know whether the cold shower is quite the same as the cold immersion. Whether it's worse, better, or about the same. And and I noticed um, a couple of news headlines, which I, I didn't go as far as to click on, but I saw that you'd been giving Donald Trump advice on how to concede an election. Yes, indeed, I did. Um, I was doing actually. Uh, I was doing interviews about the. Um, uh this green recovery a plan that we we published and um about about uh, kind of bringing forward government investment into uh sort of the whole area different areas of green um uh green sectors in order to create hundreds of thousands of jobs and uh and um somebody rather cheekily asked me you know any advice on how to concede an election and i i'm i'm an expert I noticed it didn't involve booking out Four Seasons Total Landscaping. 
It didn't involve that, no. He hasn't, strangely, strangely, you know, Donald Trump hasn't been in touch. He has been rather underground, hasn't he? Mm. I do think that the sort of general, um, you know, it's quite striking that there are very few Republicans yet saying it's over. I know, and I, I, I thought there'd be this scramble of people distancing themselves from him. But then I suppose if you look at how many votes... He got um, those people have just got to be careful not to alienate, or they're thinking we have to be careful not to alienate our base. I guess so. Anyway, if anyone, if any of them or him needs he needs advice, they know where to turn. Did you have a scramble of people distancing themselves from you? But yeah, think, have you got have you got a list of names? No, but I think there's probably. Uh, I think yeah, I'm, I'm sure there was a scramble. Um, <laughs> uh, um, it's all a bit of a blur. Um, uh, I, I would have a list of. I would have a list if I were you. Why do we always end up talking about 2015 on this podcast? Right? Should we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. This week we're talking about overcoming political polarization, which is obviously relevant uh, in the wake of the U.S. election, given some of what Joe Biden uh, has said. Um, and given, you know, the the fact that sort of more than seventy million people voted both for Trump and Biden, obviously, but Biden's winning by um, you know some millions of votes. We've talked about bridging political divides on the podcast before, and the U.S. election does show this is as important as ever. Biden's victory comes at a time of deep distrust, uh, with people divided not just on policy but on the legitimacy of the other side. In fact, polls suggest nearly three quarters of Republicans don't believe last week's election was free and fair. And maybe it's not surprising, given what Trump is saying. At the same time, half of people think we've never been so divided in the UK. We're asking about how we overcome these political divides, whether polarisation is necessarily a bad thing and in what way it's a bad thing um, if it isn't, whether it's worse than it's been before. First, we're talking to journalist Monica Guzman about overcoming polarization in the US. She's got a particularly interesting perspective as a Democrat with Trump supporting parents. And she spent election night with her parents. So that's going to be an interesting uh, conversation. We're also talking to former Danish MP Oslam Cesic about after receiving huge amounts of hate mail as an MP. She spent years having conversations with people with fundamentally different views. We're asking her what she's learned from that. She's written a book about that. And then we'll be chatting to Tim Dixon, founder of a group called More in Common, about their recent project working to understand and overcome polarisation in the UK. And our cheerful person this week is incredibly impressive. Best-selling author of How to Be an Anti-Racist and the Be Anti-Racist Handbook, Ibram X. Kendi. So what's your reason to be cheerful then? Well, mine actually is um, it's a, t- a TV show. Um we watched the first episode of Lena Dunham's Industry last night uh, on the BBC. Oh, which, yeah. Which, which is about a finance house called Pierrepoint, I think. And it's about the sort of lives of the 20-somethings who go and work there. And, um, you know, it very, very much reminds me from a completely different era of this life, which some people will remember, which was about yes. a group of law- lawyers living together in London. And I mean, it is quite um, sort of full on in terms of the kind of cutthroat nature of that environment, um, uh, the the sort of, you know, really quite extreme competition and the, and the length people are, are driven to in, t- in order to get uh, get hired. Um, but it's pretty, I thought it was pretty compelling. 
Um, so I'd, it's might it'll be a we're still moving carrying on with parks and recreation. We're 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 sort of uh, moseying on to the end of series five, but we wanted to sort of we want to have a little bit of a a change, and we're still enjoying it. But um, so industry, I would recommend it. Have you said we started that last night? I, I did find it compelling, um, and and yet I also fell asleep, which was no reflection on the program. You've not seen the Nicole Kidman um, Hugh Grant thing, have you? No, I haven't. What now? What did remind me? What's that called? It's called The Undoing, and um, it, it's one of these ones where you, the, the less you know about it going into it, the better. Um, but I think the the acting and the intrigue is it's so good my mother-in-law was saying they're watching every episode twice to see if they can spot extra clues she's convinced there's a clue in everything in the theme music in every shot there's information to be gleaned it's it's really good but um but that's not my reason to be cheerful this week what what is your reason to be cheerful i managed all on my own with no assistance to assemble some self-assembly furniture well yes what what kind of furniture we bought my son a new desk and uh, my, it, it came and it was flat pack and my wife straight away doubted that i could do it and uh, suggested that we get someone round but i went up into the box room with an allen key and a phillips screwdriver i was in there for hours uh i sustained a minor injury and i turned the air blue on a number of occasions but i got it done and i felt so accomplished i felt like a woodsman or something i, I feel extremely capable and powerful and physical i'm a lumberjack and i'm okay um that is impressive if you get something from ikea do, do, does justine do it do you do it to get someone round? father-in-law um uh no honestly i don't you don't we get my father-in-law to do it i mean honestly it's too come on me i mean honestly i'm i'm sort of i'm definitely below you i mean if you're division two i'm Vauxhall conference or not even i mean it's an insult <laughs> to the Vauxhall conference um uh i mean i'm i'm sort of not even the saturday kickabouts or sunday kickabout i mean honestly i just i i think it's just me like hammers screwdrivers I mean, honestly, I, if I can do something very, very basic, you know, in yeah. the house, then it's an, it's an like changing a light bulb. But I mean, le, le, definitely not in the assembling a desk. I'm seeing you somewhere between Mr. Bean and Frank Spencer when it comes to this kind of thing. Well, thank you very much. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by talking to Monica Guzman, who is a Seattle-based journalist and advisor to Braver Angels, uh, who we've heard from before on the podcast, a group working to bridge political divides in the United States. Monica, hello. Hey, good to be here, y'all. It's great talking to you and obviously uh, a very specific moment in American history, which is a lot of what we're going to be talking about and uh, i wondered if you could start by just telling us about election evening for you last week yeah uh feels like an eternity ago first of all um but i i made an unusual decision i reached out to my parents some days before election day and asked if i could hang out with them that day and watch the returns with them um and that's unusual uh, i suppose because they are red and voted for Trump, and I am blue and voted for Biden. Tell us a bit about your your parents and um, tell us how that has been in recent years. Yeah, this year, my family uh, marks 20 years as American citizens. We're Mexican immigrants. And um, I was there when my parents got their citizenship. Um, 
you know, felt a ton of pride, immediately became Republicans. Me and my brother were sort of mystified by that. Uh, but I think they were mystified by our politics as well. So over the years, it's been a lot of political clashes and always coming back to the fact that, look, you're like, we're like a very unfiltered family. Maybe that's the Mexican culture. I don't know. We've always known what each other thinks and feels. And so even as you know, the rest of the country's gotten so, so polarized. Somehow I've still been able to talk to my parents about politics. I knew that election day was going to be, you know, some drama for sure. And it was, we butted heads on a lot of things that night. And how how has it been during the Trump administration, particularly? Because I, I don't know, you know, you, maybe you can tell us a bit about this, but what led them to become Republican supporters? But particularly with Trump, we've heard all this rhetoric about immigration and Mexico in, in particular. Have you had conversations with them about that and how they, you know, how they square that with their own background? Yeah, absolutely. And this is the number one question I get. And I, you know, I'm always uncomfortable speaking on behalf of other people's beliefs. So I want to put that, you know, out there. But but I know that my parents are comfortable with my saying a few things. Uh, one is that for my mom grew up Catholic, um, Mexican Catholic family and household, very, very strong Catholic values. And um, in high school, where she was a Spanish teacher at my high school in New Hampshire, she was um, she started the Respect for Life Club. Uh, abortion is an incredibly important issue for her. Uh, for her, supporting abortion is supporting murder. And it's really difficult to put something on the other side of that equation. For my father, um, he, he grew up in Mexico kind of thinking, man, I feel like I was born in the wrong country. Um, looking north and looking at the United States and seeing a country that enforced its laws, um, that wasn't as corrupt and where people kind of, you know, there was just more order to things and things worked. So that's the thing, right? I think, I think many Americans kind of assume that there's this broad identification Mexicans with Mexicans, but we're a very diverse bunch. And, and let me ask you this because, you know, it's been a pretty, well, from the point of view of people watching Trump with with our perspective, it's been a pretty grim four years. How, what kind of reaction do they have to Trump's handling of coronavirus or some of the more appalling sort of racist or, you know, misogynistic comments that Trump makes? Do they explain it away or do they try and sort of deny it? Mm. You know, I think there's a third alternative, uh, which is that for them, the things they care about are different. So when I come to them with questions like that, which I absolutely have, like, how can you be okay with, you know, Trump didn't commit to a peaceful transfer of power? How can you be okay with this, you know, seemingly racist thing, you know, and this and that and the other thing? And like, what I find is after like a lot of this, because we just do this for a while, you know, eventually we'll get to a place where it becomes clear that that is not those things are not why they support him um that it's other things that don't matter as much to me and that they have sort of their political values just stacked in a different order so they'll they'll turn it around and say monica why don't you you know why don't you give him credit for this or that why do you give him credit for the economy how come nobody talks about you know these these things and so we end up kind of like this right where it's a different set of things that we think is the most important set of things. 
Now, now you don't, of course, just have this very interesting and illuminating relationship with your parents. You work with Braver Angels, who we had on the podcast uh, a couple of years ago when they were Better Angels. Could you just remind our listeners what Braver Angels is and talk about how you got involved in it? Yeah, so Braver Angels is the largest depolarization organization in the United States. Um, so, you know, that's a word that we've seen a lot. Polarization, depolarization. It's largely volunteer run. It's a group of some incredible people um, that I've been uh, just honored to, to get to know and work with. And the, the work of Braver Angels is, is not to try to get people to lift off of what they believe. The point of Braver Angels is to bring us back to that humanity, to make sure that when we other the political other, we don't dehumanize. We don't unduly start to demonize half the country by the way that people vote. And so Braver Angels does some really incredible workshops. I've, I've done a lot of those where you start to, you know, listen and, and understand how the other side sees things. Because it's easy from your side to think the other side was either ignorant or evil. But then you hear how they see it. They start in a different place and suddenly it kind of makes sense. And once you're there, I don't know, suddenly it becomes like imaginable to actually work together and, I don't know, make a better society and govern ourselves, right? And how did you discover them? So um, several years ago, I I started a publication in Seattle called The Evergrey. And um, just a few months into our existence, uh, the, you know, the election had happened and we decided we want to actually help people get curious in Seattle about something that is hard to get curious about, which is why did people who voted for Trump vote for Trump? So we, we did this, uh, this 10 hour road trip from King County, which is where Seattle is to Sherman County, Oregon. And, um, Sherman County, Oregon voted the opposite of King County, Washington. 74% went for Trump. So, um, we came down, that was in March of 2017. And we had these incredible conversations and got to know, um, uh, fourth generation wheat farmers. We drive down, we're surrounded by wheat fields and it's, it's just completely different lifestyle. We have these amazing conversations. We come back. And after that experience, I, I sort of felt like there needs to be more of this. And over time, I, I just felt even more that this divide in American society, this growing animosity, it's the biggest problem we have. It's underneath everything else. And, and tell us uh, about the work, uh, Monica, if you would, that Braver Angels plans to do in the aftermath of this, you know, quite divided election. So um, the local chapters are busy uh, trying to, you know, respond and, and, and sort of hold and contain the emotions after the election and the concerns and the worries on both sides. Nationally, um, there's a campaign called With Malice Toward None. And um, there, so there's groups all around the country uh, planning and having gatherings and conversations that are about, again, trying to heal, trying to make sure that it, we don't all go, well, the election happened, you know, just like, let's move on. Because <laughs> like, that never works with any argument, even in like a family, right? Like, that's not how it works. So so with Malice Toward None is about, okay, like, how's everybody doing? You know, what what's it going to take? Um, what do we need to talk about to, to make sure that we can still see each other as human and, and move on and, and our country doesn't suffer in these ways that we're afraid it could? Uh, we also have the Hold America Together campaign. So that's a letter um, that you can find on our website that nearly 7,000 people have signed. And that uh, we, we started circulating well before the election uh, because it's a letter that 
pledges uh, to resist, you know, violence, which was something a lot of people were afraid about um, on both sides and and pledges to find each other as citizens, um, to find the goodwill that that, you know, should and, and hopefully will always be at the base of our society um, and begin there. And Joe Biden's talked a lot about you know, the kind of language that, um, in a sense, you're talking about, about sort of bringing back to people together, bringing people back together, not treating our opponents as our enemies, and, and all of that. How hopeful are you that that is possible? I don't think it's politicians' jobs to do this, and I don't think that they possibly can. Hopefully, Biden continues to try to inspire people to come together. But, um, but the only people who can really do that work is is us. <laughs> it's, that's it. I mean, I, I really believe in that sort of grassroots. It starts with the person. I know it doesn't sound sexy. It doesn't sound like it can scale, but it absolutely can. Um, so that's what I think. It's like, it's all just, if, if people ask one more question in a conversation of someone they disagree on, and if it's a curious question rather than one that tries to make a point, if we just have one more conversation, if we ask one more question, those are the things that are really going to bring us together. Because also, look, unity, unity is like, sounds really nice. But if we're not hearing each other, if we're not hearing each other's pain and outrage, we're just pretending, you know, and then whatever unity we make is like this sugar coated. It's not going to mean a thing. So it's going to be messy and it's going to be ugly. Um, so I want to make sure everybody knows that. <laughs> Okay, Monica Guzman, um, Braver Angels is a really interesting organization. Thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Well, to talk about this whole issue of political polarization as it particularly applies to the UK, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Tim Dixon, who is co-founder of More in Common, an organization working to counter social division and, and polarization in the UK and indeed around the world. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Great to join you. If you would tell us, first of all, what, what is more in common and what's the story of how you came to set it up? Yeah, so we were set up uh, in the wake of Joe Cox's death, uh, her murder back in 2016. Um, but our work is focused on the, uh, the these big forces of division that are driving societies apart and how do we counter them? How do we understand what's happening, why we're in such a period of disruption um, across uh, many Western democracies and how do we respond to that? And so our work has been to dig into the psychology of populations and then to work out if we can understand better the reasons why the divisions seem so much more profound, what, what are the solutions? And, uh, and we're, we're across the, uh, the US, UK, France and Germany, which also gives us a little bit of a lens of what's happening in different places. Are there solutions that are working in one place that we can try in another country? And also just sort of getting into the depth of what's distinctive in each of our societies. And your latest uh, publication, which is a really fascinating publication, Britain's Choice, looks at political divides in the UK. Tell us just at overall terms, what have you found out about polarisation here and how it compares to other countries? So in many ways, it's a more positive story than what we uh, often imagine. We're often we're, we're more conscious of division because, in fact, when we did this big study, it's 10,000 people. It's at britainschoice.uk if anybody wants to have a look at it. Um, and so we, we looked widely at you know, where people, how people feel society is, and half the country says we've never been as divided as we feel now. But the story is not a story of a country being divided into a sort of 48 or 52. It's more a story of 
that we have from issue to issue, we have different points of view. We have a problem that conflict is being elevated and our political system has managed that conflict, especially poorly uh, in recent years. But when we dig deep and, and ask people about their, their values and their beliefs and you know, what really makes them tick and how they think about society, what we found is seven types, seven sort of personality types, if you like, um, around people's values. And some of them feel very familiar to you. We have a progressive activist group that's very political. We have a backbone conservative group that's very political as well. But five of the seven groups don't actually base their identity around politics. And what's interesting, we kind of use this image of a kaleidoscope in the story we tell, that Britain's more like, you know, there's sort of kids' kaleidoscopes where you've got the, the different colours of, uh, of glass that sort of cluster together. And if you turn the kaleidoscope, they cluster together in a different way. Turn again, they cluster together a different way. And that's what these groups are like, that on an issue around economics, uh, inequality, they'll cluster one way. On an issue like climate, another way. On immigration, another way. Why that's important is that what we see in the US is a the idea of sort of stacked identities where people line up all the same way. If you, if you tell me that you're buying arugula at Whole Foods, uh, Whole Foods, I know that you are going to take a position on police brutality, on feminism, et cetera, et cetera, because everything stacks up in the US context. That is not true here. And in fact, to govern, to win an election and to govern successfully in the UK even, you have to sort of bring together a coalition of different groups. And that dynamic actually is a much healthier dynamic. The other thing that comes out is there's an awful lot more common ground, and, and not just on the kind of most gen generic kumbaya stuff, but actually on really substantive things, People, what people think is wrong with the country, what they think the priorities should be for the future. I think there's actually more common ground in the UK than there is in any of the other major Western democracies that we've looked at. We want to bring attention to that and bring a focus on that, because that what that tells you is that you could actually bring people together around a forward-looking agenda that improves people's lives. And do you think, before we dive deeper into your findings, which are really interesting, I mean, everybody thinks we're more polarised, but of course, in 1945, they didn't have Twitter, nor did, they, nor did we have it in 1980, in the 1980s, when I was growing up, Margaret Thatcher and so on. I mean, I, I, I sort of ask a very basic question. What's the evidence that we are more polarised than we were? The strongest evidence is just asking people about their, their own perceptions, how they feel. Do they feel, does the country feel divided? It feels more fractured. It's hard to be super scientific about making comparisons between now and the past. But I think that, you know, what, what the overall information environment is giving us now and the noise of social media is this feeling of it being much more, you know, much more divided, possibly than it really is. I mean, one of the things that we're showing in our in our research, in fact, Pew Research did this some, something a couple of years ago that showed that 97% of the tweets about politics come from just 2% of the population. And a lot of us sit in the middle of that sort of constant Twitter storm and think, oh, this is the country and the country is going crazy about this issue. And it's like it would be helpful for us to sort of take a chill pill and realise that actually this is a very small segment of society. Most people are never uh, on Twitter. And most people are not talking about politics uh, when they're on social media. One of the other things that is worth talking about in your report, uh, Tim, is about how COVID-19 has changed people's perceptions of the country, um, themselves, their community. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? It was striking how... People were so fatigued by the Brexit years 
And when COVID came along, there was a sort of moment of um, community coming together. And there was a real sense of almost exhilaration in, even though obviously people were very apprehensive about the pandemic, but also feeling, wow, actually, society's not that bad. People are coming together in my community, they're forming, you know, a WhatsApp group or Facebook group or people are sort of doing, I'm helping out my elderly neighbour, all of those things. Um, so there was that real shift. Now, over time, as always happens with the sort of big natural disaster experiences, there has been some loss of that. It's become more fractious and more debates. But what's in- interesting from our research is that a couple of things are still there and there have been some permanent changes. Uh, one is that Compared to, we've done a study across seven of the major Western democracies. The UK comes out first on all of the measures of we feel like uh, we're more concerned for each other. Uh, We're concerned about the impact of COVID on minorities, for example. Uh, We feel like our society has sort of pulled together. Um, The UK is consistently top on those. We've also seen a big shift of 15% more people feel that they can make a difference, improve things in their own local communities. And that's like a basic kind of building block of democracy. And can you talk to us a little bit about the the clusters of things that these seven different groups agree on that have turned up in the report? And then, you know, maybe what that could tell us about uh, building support for political change in the future? So one thing is, more than any other country, um, you know, as I mentioned, we did seven of the big Western democracies, there is a a consensus around we need to change. We need significant change. But two in three people feel that we we should, and we should take the opportunity of a time of disruption and change to to fix things. That starts with the NHS, unsurprisingly, but it's much broader. The really striking um, consensus around we have to close the gap between the haves and have-nots, four in five people agree. Even the most conservative group, half of them agree, we've got a big serious problem there. Only one in seven people in the country think that hard work, people who work hard are are given a fair share of the nation's wealth. Another example is on climate, where we found there is not a kind of culture wars around climate. Now, if you talk to more conservative values people, they don't use exactly the same language as progressives do about climate. They talk more about protecting our countryside and our natural heritage and our rural way of life. But they're absolutely on board uh, in terms of the reality of climate change. Very few people deny that. The last thing is, is just a very strong consensus, again, four, and five, four out of five people, on too many decisions are centralised in London. We need to have more power, more decision-making being made in local communities. And what I think is interesting when you put those pieces together is, we, as we rebuild the economy, build back better um, post-COVID, there's got to be a story that brings climate economy, place-based development, local communities, tackling inequality, bring those pieces together. And it feels like if we could make progress on those, and they're big things, obviously, but if we could make progress on those things, you would also be able to rebuild some of the trust in the system that has been lost in recent years. I would just have asked this question, uh, Tim, because I find this an incredibly interesting subject and your work on it absolutely fascinating. And I suppose it comes back to the roots of this, don't you have to basically say lots of our institutions are failing to deal with the underlying economic and social issues that our country that our countries are facing and that is the fertile soil in which polarize you know in other words polarization doesn't come out of happiness it comes out of people feeling deeply sort of discontented it's probably worth saying that isn't it that you know it's the institutions 
of our society that have failed to deal with lots of these massive problems. You know, why are lots of young people angry about climate change? Because politics have been hopeless at dealing with climate change. I think you're spot on. There's a group, it's roughly a third of the population in most Western countries, who have largely given up on the system. Um, they tend to vote a lot less. Um, but when populists have come along, they've been out in force because those populists are going to promise them to promise to turn the system upside down and to sort of change everything. And they have deep frustration. They don't feel like their voice is heard. They don't feel respected. They don't think the institutions are relevant to them. And they're willing to take a gamble on something quite dangerous. So, yes, you, you, we have to get the institutions working, not for the sake of having strong institutions, but for the sake of making people's lives better and solving some of those problems. And I think that right now we have some real rebuilding work to do because the institutions have taken a real battering. And the way to rebuild it is to, is to deal with those uh, big issues and for people to see that real progress can be made. Well, look, Tim Dixon, your, your organisation and the work you do is incredibly interesting and incredibly uh, important. People can find uh, the report Britain's Choice uh, on your website. For now, thank you so much for joining us. Great to join you. Thanks so much. Well, we're very excited to talk now to Uslem Cekic, who used to be a, an MP for the Socialist People's Party in Denmark and is the author of Overcoming Hate Through Dialogue, Confronting Prejudice, Racism and Bigotry with Conversation and Coffee. Shouldn't we ask Uslan what her favourite coffee is first, first of all, Jeff? Yeah, that is so embarrassing. I'm not drinking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so difficult to call it dialogue tea in Denmark because no one is drinking tea in Denmark. <laughs> so, so the name is the dialogue coffee. So I, with a lot of milk, I can drink coffee. <laughs> Let, let's start about talking about your background. Um, so yeah. t tell us a bit about that and then how, how you became an MP and then what that experience was was like for you. I was born in Turkey uh, from uh, Kurdish parents and uh, we moved to Denmark when I was a young child. And in 2007, uh, I ran for a seat in the Danish parliament as one of the first women with a minority background. And um, I was elected and... I had to get used to finding hate messages in my inbox. So uh, that was the way I started to get all the hate mails because I was part of the debate. Or the more I involved in the debate, the more hate mail I received. And at this point, are you just thinking, these are crazy people, I'm going to delete it and try not to think about it? Yeah, because I say I never answered the emails. So I just deleted them. So what changed then? It's changed one day uh, in the zoo. Um, it was in, in 2010 and a Nazi began to harass me. Uh, and he could call up to 40, 50 times in, uh, in the day. And over time, it became really nasty. Uh, one day I was at the zoo with my children and the phone kept ringing and it was the Nazi. So I had the impression that he was close and he could see my children. We headed home and, and when we got back, my son asked, why does he hate you, mom, when he doesn't even know you? So I said, some people are just stupid. Um, and, uh, and I closed the discussion and uh, I talked with one of my friends and, and he asked me, did you really say that to your child? I said, yes, but that is the answer. He said, no, no, you should visit them. I think, visit them? They will kill me. 
And he said, no, they will never attack them as, uh, a, a member of the parliament. And if they killed you, you would become a martyr. So it's only pure win-win situation for you. <laughs> I decided to visit one of them who had sent me hate mails. And my goal in this time was that I want to make him good again. So that was how I start to visit a man. His name was Ingolf. Uh, so he accepted that I will visit him. So, uh, and I will, uh, you know, I will never forget uh, the first time um, I was in his house and he opened his front door and reached out to shake my hand. I felt so disappointed right. because he looked nothing like I imagined. I expected a horrible person and a dirty, messy house. It was not. His house smelled of coffee, which he served from a coffee set identical to the one my parents used. So it was a shock for me. And I ended up staying for two and a half hours with him. And what, what about the idea, that naive idea that you had going in, that if he could just meet me and if I, if I could just uh, get him to see my point of view, I could make him good. What, what happened to that idea? So when I got home, I was very ambivalent about my experience because on the one hand, I really, really liked him. He was pleasant and easy to talk to. But on the other hand, I couldn't stand off the idea of having so much in common uh, with someone who has such clear racist views. And gradually and painfully, I came to realize that I had been judgmental, just like the ones who had sent me hate mails. But is, isn't it okay in a way to to judge a view like racism? It's it's not like a disagreement about you know, how much um, unemployment benefit somebody should should receive. It's it's a it, racism is a hatred, isn't isn't it? Sort of okay to judge that hatred. Yeah, but everyone do it. You know, a lot of people I talk with, they're always talking about how tolerant they are. And, uh, and when I ask them, do you have some friends who are voting differently than you? No, they don't have anyone because they don't want to talk with the others. Right. And they label them. I think it was Hillary Clinton who called for deplorables, you know. Uh, the, uh, and everyone in the all countries do it the same. And um, so so I, I really recognize that it's not only about what the others doing wrong, but how we can do things right. And you can do it right when you label people. It's not just this one man who is harassing you that you've talked to and spent time with you've you've now made a practice of it this is what your book is about yeah talk to us about the other conversations that you've had and whether you think it's been successful i have a couple of hundreds uh dollar coffee meetings and i visit different uh, people but you know people ask me again and again if any of the people i have met for dialogue coffee have changed their opinions uh, but that is not the point of dialogue. Uh, dialogue is not about changing people's opinions. Dialogue is about tolerating differences without resorting to violence or bans. Because if everyone in the West, in US, in Europe, they're talking about they are democratic uh, citizen. But if we really believe in democracy, 
in democracy, you have freedom to have your own opinion. But, but Uslim, you know, you're obviously engaged in a a very admirable attempt to try and bridge differences. But I think what a lot of people would say listening to this is prejudice, hatred, making people feel unsafe in the society, including you, is not just an opinion. I think a lot of people listening to this would say you sound an incredibly sort of tolerant um, person, given the threats and uh, what you've faced. But 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 why should we be tolerant of intolerance of such intolerance? Because that is the that that is democracy. In democracy, you have people you can tolerate people who is not supporting democracy. That is the difference between democracy and dictator. So I think, you know, um, I understand what you are saying. Uh, the conversation is very very difficult in democracy, but it's necessary. What is the alternative? So I agree that a lot of the people who send this hate mails, it's not only opinion. Some of them are doing horrible things. But if we want to stop it, how can we do it? Everyone has to take a responsibility on their shoulders. So if you really are against war, you have to actively work for peace. And you can't make peace with your friends. <laughs> that is not peace. You have to make peace with your enemies. So you have but, but, to meet them. But then, Uslan, you must believe, you must believe that even though you don't want to say that's the purpose of it, you must be having an effect on the racist far-right people that you meet because because that's in a way implicit in what you just said to me. Of, of course, because when I visit the people, I am a democrat, democratic person, so I believe in democracy. So that is my val va values. I take them with me to the meetings. And I will talk about how important it is with freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom, uh, equality between, uh, between men and, uh, and women. So that is why I'm believing. So you always have to have this critical conversation with people. I'm not saying that all the racist views is okay. I believe that all uh, opinions are legitimate, as say, don't call for violence, but it's not means they are equally good. Every opinion is not equally good because democratic values are always better than undemocratic values. Well, look, Aslam, uh, anyone listening to this would be... Um we'll find it quite a sort of remarkable um, undertaking and remarkable thing that you're going to be doing, particularly as you don't like coffee, um, but uh, for, for many other bigger reasons as well. Um, we really appreciate you um, uh, joining us. I think people have lots to learn uh, from your book and we wish you all the best of luck. But but can, can I give you a challenge? Yeah, go on. Can you try to have a dialogue coffee with someone you uh, disagree with someone. It's hard enough don't... getting him to so... have a coffee with me, who he largely agrees <laughs> with. He's not going to find time to have a coffee with somebody he disagrees with. I was going to say, does Jeff does Jeff count? Uh, <laughs> okay, so look, we'll set our listeners this cha challenge, Uslem, which is that they have dialogue coffee with people who have very different views from them. We'll obviously have to do this after we 
ex-lockdown yeah. <laughs> because we're not allowed to meet anybody else at the moment, just to be clear about this. But we'll either do it, they'll either do it on Zoom or maybe after after um, we get through uh, COVID. But Uslem, thank you so much. It's been incredibly interesting to talk to you. Thank you so much. Bye. Well, I found this quite a challenging subject to get my head around. What did you think? That was interesting, wasn't it? Because I guess... Uh, the main reason we're talking about it at this at this point this week is because of the american elections and there's this feeling that oh god our countries are all so polarized talking to tim um it's it's a very different picture here yeah it's like it's all stacked up in america it's like a whole bunch of now I, i'm sure we have it as well a bit but it's, it's it feels much more it feels much more kind of uh sort of i don't know what the word is but but it but it feels much more kind of deep and 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 kind of unresolvable in america at least from what tim and others are saying if you're a republican you believe all these things and it's very tied into your identity yeah, if you're a Democrat, yeah. it's another whereas here from the research that tim has done it's uh there's there's a lot more crossover of opinion and the things that people care about exactly i mean you know, if I think about personally about myself, and I'm certainly not suggesting I'm a paradigm, you know, I don't really hate, you know, I don't hate my political opponents. And I do, and this is a kind of rather anecdotal point, but I do, you know, I talk to conservative MPs and I and I try and sort of listen to them and work out where they're coming from, because I don't, I'm not sure that, you know, I just don't think it's much of a, I don't think it's very productive to hate your opponents. And that's why I kind of find Twitter pretty difficult. And because, it, you know, never mind your political party political opponents people often hate each other within parties you know or seem you know seem to sort of take lumps out of each other when they're supposed to be on the same broad side um i I find myself a bit ambivalent though about this question of whether what polarization exactly is and whether it's a bad thing i mean Mm. obviously sort of you know kind of hatred and vilification all that is terrible but but if it's that people have very very strong views about how society needs to change you know maybe you know we probably need that so it's complicated this i think it's and i i mean i do we always rag on social media but i mean i think social media does make it not just worse but more apparent well it's it's that thing isn't it 20 25 years ago i you know i knew what my uncle melvin thought about the weather but i didn't know what he thought about politics uh, and also uncle melvin didn't have an alternative set of facts 25 years ago i mean i think yeah. the fact that you've got a different set of facts from uncle melvin you know if you if you're thinking about political discourse and democracy relies on a kind of at least a shared understanding of the problems that you're dealing with or at least a modicum of that i do think that the, the the different factual universe and we're seeing this playing out you know in the trump um kind of arguing about the election thing you know i do think that is that is a kind of that is problematic can i ask you this question though what about the because i think we can't really ignore this what about the sort of you know having the coffee understanding your opponents even if they're racists and all that i mean i find myself i find myself quite kind of uncertain about that I, f- I find it difficult i do find it difficult to square that one what about you i agree with you i find it quite difficult and Uslem has obviously taken a you know 
a sort of brave approach. But I mean, I kind of sort of understand it if it's trying to persuade the racist person not to be racist. I think it's different for her as somebody who's on the receiving end of it, perhaps. Yeah, and it's hard for us to lecture her. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I'm not sure why she should have to <laughs> sort of tolerate that. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And for our cheerful person this week, we're delighted to be joined by Ibram X. Kendi, who is Director of Centre for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University, author of the wildly successful How to Be an Anti-Racist and the new book, Be Anti-Racist. Let, let's talk about your work. Uh, it focuses on anti-racism. And I, I thought it'd be good to start by just talking specifically about the difference between anti-racism and being not racist. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, please? I think it's important for us to distinguish between anti-racism with with an M, which is systemic, which is a a powerful collection of of policies that lead to equity and justice and are substantiated by ideas of racial equality from anti-racist with a T, which is individual, which is someone who is expressing an anti-racist idea or supporting an anti-racist policy with their actions. Historically, individuals who have been upholding the system of racism and by upholding, meaning thinking that there's something inferior about a racial group, supporting policies that are leading to inequity and injustice, doing nothing in the face of inequity and injustice. When challenged as being racist, their typical response is, is I'm not racist. And indeed, they say they're perfect. In other words, they're perfectly not racist. They never do or say anything that's racist. By contrast, someone who's anti-racist recognize they're imperfect, recognize that they have likely been racist, recognize the times in which they say or do something that is racist, but they seek to be better. They seek to change. They seek to acknowledge the times in which they make mistakes, while someone who's not racist always claims um, and always denies when they're being racist. 
I, I wanted to talk about something in your previous book, How to Be Anti-Racist. It, it, it opens with a chapter called My Racist Introduction, and, and it, you write about a speech you gave whilst at high school. Um, can you tell us about that speech and about what it illustrates about this idea of anti-racism? Well, first, the, the fundamental question the individual should be asking is, am I upholding or challenging this system of racism? And I had consumed many of the anti-Black racist ideas in the 1990s that said the problem wasn't racism, the problem was Black people, particularly Black youth. And in the 90s in the United States, just as it was in other countries, Black youth were considered a menace to society. And in all these ways, we were demonized and denigrated. And, and I end up believing that there was a problem with Black youth, and I end up imagining that somehow I was extraordinary. And, and so I expressed many of those anti-Black ideas in that speech, all the while swearing that I was serving Black people, and certainly I would have imagined that I was not racist. When in reality, I was substantiating uh, and upholding this system of, of racism. And, and it took me a while, of course, to, to realize that, to, to realize that, that each individual is either being racist or anti-racist, and, and, and for me to strive to be anti-racist. And now your your new um, book is uh, Be Anti-Racist is described as a handbook for turning good intentions into anti-racist action. Talk to us about what role you want this book to to play and, and, and what, what made you uh, produce it, this handbook. In many ways, How to Be an Anti-Racist takes the reader on my journey. And I... I, I my, a lot of the feedback that I received from How to Be an Anti-Racist was that, you know, they as individuals would like to go on a similar journey, uh, would like to really think about their own past, would like to reconsider uh, and, and really seek to understand some of potentially the racist ideas they have believed in the past or still believe today so that they can contribute better to this larger struggle for 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 equity and justice uh, worldwide. Now, How to Be Anti-Racist um, has been incredibly successful. It topped top the New York Times book chart earlier this year. Do you think there is currently a greater willingness to engage with these ideas? Do you think there is a sense in which some of the the kind of ice is breaking on the on the sort of, you know, that the lack of progress that has been on these issues? So I think so. I mean, and certainly the awareness of people in, in the Western world to the existence of, of racism has, has hit record heights. The, the question now for, for people is whether they're going to turn, whether we're going to turn this awareness into action. That's the fundamental question. And, and what I mean by action is transformation. Well, that's a really good note to, to end on. Ibrahim uh, Kendi, uh, the, the new book is Be Anti-Racist, the follow-up to the very successful How to Be Anti-Racist. 
Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro. Um, it's a packed show today, uh, so we don't have time for your emails, but we do read them all, so please do send them in. You can find us uh, on the interweb at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can sign up to our brilliant newsletter, um, and we always love to hear from you about what you thought of today's podcast and, indeed, ideas for future podcasts. I do have one small bit of stuff. Um, I got a um, text message which had read as follows. This is Sam and Daniel's American babysitter, Lynn Barron. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I haven't felt this proud to be an American in years. This is a win for democracy and decency. This is about, not about the Rubik's Cube, but about Biden. Don't tell Jeff I texted you. He will think I overstepped the boundary. Uh, And then, intriguingly, I got a text from an unknown UK number that I thought was you, but was not. But I'm responding anyway. (laughs) Keep up the good work. (laughs) Anyway. Well, I, I can solve that, mister. It was my mum who texted her. Ah! Yeah. Well, Lynn, if you're listening, it was Jeff's mum who texted you from an unknown number. I, th- I think, you know, Lynn is really, uh, it's, it's a real personal victory for her, this presidential election. But sh- you don't think she's overstepped the boundary, do you? I, th- I think Sarah would definitely think she'd overstepped the boundary. Well, I do. I think definitely she's well within the boundaries. <laughs> Right, let's thank our guests, Monica Guzman, Tim Dixon, and Uslem Chekic. And, of course, the fantastic Ibram X. Kendi. Emma Corsham does an excellent job producing our podcast week in, week out, and all the research is expertly compiled and delved into by Joel Pierce, who uh, gets back up from Zoe Gelber, Fanula DC, and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed C composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance, and the artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been the man with the Allen key. He's been the man with the concession speech. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. 